It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by the author of Black American Refugee, Tiffany Drayton. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. So, I I read your the the essay in the New York Times. I'm sure everybody, I'm sure most people listening probably read your essay that was <laughs> that was printed in the New York Times. It is from this book. It was called I'm a Black American. I had to get out. But for those people who maybe did not have that passed to them by every single friend in their group last summer, um, can you talk a little bit about what what the personal experience that you were trying to convey and and why you made the decisions that you did? Sure. Well, in that essay, I pretty much wrote about my time in America from childhood until I made the decision to leave in 2013 um, after the murder of Trayvon Martin. That was the first time I, I really sat down and said to myself, listen, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep trying to win this fight against racism. So that piece pretty much told that story of everything leading up to me making that decision, including and not limited to being priced out of neighborhoods, always struggling to find a good school. Um, you know, I watched my mother work two or three jobs trying to make ends meet. So it was this constant fight for survival in America and the decision to leave ultimately. I mean, one of the things about this is that as I get older, um, <laughs> this this uh, choice becomes more and more attractive to me. <laughs> um, I've <laughs> frequently fa- uh, fantasized about, you know, living on an island. I remember... And and just like picking one and going there and making a life and being happy because there's sunshine and beach and mm-hmm. not racism in the same manifestation. And one of the things that happened right after the 2016 election is I went to an island. I went to St. Martin at the time. And I remember meeting somebody who was like, yeah, I came here on for vacation. I was visiting my grandfather and I decided to stay here. <laughs> and I was like, that's a good <laughs> idea, man. You got you figured that out. He was all happy and like peaceful and his whole energy was different than like anybody in New York City. Um, when you were sort of, you know, making the choice, I mean, of where to go, I mean, how did you make that determination? And like, was that about, you know, going to a place that was more representative, um, you know, and was better? on some of the issues that you had been struggling with growing up as a black American person um, in the United States. Right. Well, that choice was really informed by a couple of things. And so I'm originally, I was born in Trinidad and Tobago, Mm -hmm. so I am an immigrant. Um, However, I had been in America since I was about four years old. So Mm -hmm. I was so disconnected from Trinidad and the culture. And as a young adult, I spent so much of my time just traveling around the world. Um, because I worked online, it gave me the opportunity to just pick up and go somewhere else and give somewhere else a try. And, and, you know, speaking about New York and the cost of living, it was so much easier for me to get by in different countries. And that's pretty much how my interest in traveling elsewhere kind of started. Just like, okay, I can go to Thailand on the same income and get a lot more out of it. Mm -hmm. But then as I got older, it also became a matter of like finding your roots and returning to Trinidad for me brought this reawakening of this black womanhood outside of the purview or like the gaze of whiteness. Mm. And so Trent had really called to me in that way because I was like, here I am 
experiencing representation for people who look like me and myself every single day by way of just walking through neighborhoods that are safe with people of color or seeing the government full of people of color, et cetera. One of the things that I think you hear in America whenever somebody expresses the desire to uh, have it, you know, to not be this messed up by moving somewhere else, (laughs) someone will say, but everywhere is racist. There's racism everywhere. And if there isn't, and, and then you and then you say, well, okay, what about like East Africa? Like what, you know, what, what about, what about Trinidad? And they'll say, well, there's colorism there. Like, so my question to you is like, is that as, as a black woman who's been moving around the world, is, is that true? Is every place racist like we are, or did, do we have a special strain? Well, uh, there's definitely a special strain. Um, <laughs> however, you know, racism Variant, is the end result Yes, yes, of, of colonialism and, of course, um, white supremacy. Um, so these are things that are, um, you could see iterations of it all around the world. So I, I view these large systemic issues as a global issue of white supremacy being embedded in governments, financial systems, etc. But then when you're dealing with it on an interpersonal level and you're in a country where the majority of the people look like you and you're able to kind of stretch out freely and say, ah, I can stretch here without that constantness of white majority rule. Um, and, and that meaning even, even in your daily experiences, like you walk into a restaurant, you're the only black person with your two kids and all of the white people stop for a moment and just kind of take a look like, what's that? Um, so kind of escaping that constant policing in your daily life is something that moving allows you to do in a way that you wouldn't be able to do in America's iteration of white supremacy. One of the things that makes me think of is like how physically you might feel different because you don't Mm -hmm. even, I mean, it's almost like when I went, when I moved out of Brooklyn to like the country for the pandemic, for the first part of the pandemic, I realized that like my nervous system was reacting differently and like the neck tension and pain Mm -hmm. I was having all the time. And I'm like, what is wrong with my back? Oh, it's just, I live in Brooklyn. Um, And also (laughs) in white supremacy, right. And patriarchy. So there's like all these things like happening in my body physically that I don't realize are connected to like the world I'm environment I'm in. Can you talk about if you felt different? Like, does your nervous system have a different reaction when there is not a white gaze you know, examining you all the time and looking at you all the time. And, you know, then you have to sort of navigate that. I mean, does your body act differently? Absolutely. And, you know, you kind of feel that buildup and that tension all over you, but you become so used to it that it's kind of in the back of your mind until, for example, like when I started hopping on the plane for the first time to go back to Trinidad after recognizing that's where I wanted to live, where I felt freer. And on the plane, I would be reeling through all of these thoughts like is the plane gonna crash am i gonna get there because i'm just so excited to get to get out you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, i'm like oh my god am i gonna make it am i gonna be free and the hostages are, are on the tarmac the and- <laughs> yes everybody yeah, knows the plane is taking off like my brain is running as fast as the plane uh also trying to take off um so kind of analyzing those moments of even just your mind racing um with the thought of escape really reflects how much pressure you had been under for the entire time that you were existing. And, you know, I always say like, upon my return, whenever I return to the United States of America, I get this like physical sinking feeling. And, you know, when I watched Mm -hmm. it out, I was like, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that looks familiar. (laughs) Am I being get outed? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so there's this physical sinking where I'm like, 
um, a part of me is sinking into the depths. Mm. Um, so I definitely know what you mean when you when you feel this tension, this heaviness, or any number of things, because ultimately emotions evoke physical response. So you're going to get that all over your body and your mind, etc. Okay, so the other thing you get from the pro-America people is that we mm. are such a wealthy country. The mm -hmm. kinds of opportunities that are available here are simply not available in other places. So if you choose to make a life elsewhere, yeah, there, there might be things, you know, you might get more beach, you might get more sunshine, but you're not going to get the same kind of financial security and wealth that you would here. Do you care to rebut? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, I got a role in this conversation and I know what it is. <laughs> okay, a chance to rebut to that. Well, let's just examine poverty in the United States of America right. and the millions of impoverished people. So yes, perhaps as an overall um, GDP or as an overall uh, measure of wealth with extreme wealth disparity in the United States of America, if you're taking a mean um, you might have the false impression that people are not under economic constraints. But the last time I checked, I think last year, household uh, debt increased by one point something trillion dollars. So that kind of speaks to the reality that people are under extreme economic pressure in the United States of America. And if we want to talk about opportunity, I would say the opportunity to be free and just exist is paramount to even financial uh, well-being. Because if I'm very rich and I am a black woman, like I know there was a story of a black woman who um, was a well-to-do black woman. I think she was a professor or a doctor and she bought her son a BMW. And he went out in his BMW and had an, uh, an interaction with police that ended his life. So it's like ultimately wealth cannot, or even, well, maybe wealth, but rich, being rich cannot protect you from what it means to exist in a society constantly under the pressure and the gaze of racism and white supremacy. It's true. I mean, Are I think about- cult? Because America uh, I mean, just a cult. Like we're all, we've all just been brainwashed that like this is the only way to be happy. You have to keep doing this thing. This is the thing that's going to work, and every everywhere else is a lie. When that's probably I'm shaking not my the head case. very hard right now. You can't see that. But, yeah, but yes. You're I mean, I not of approval here. Yep. I mean, I do think that, and I also think. I mean, I'm glad you rebutted that point forcefully because I think about I think about this a lot. Like I've been sort of on the hamster wheel that we're all on. Um, you know, trying to, in capitalism, trying to make money to buy stuff that mm -hmm. we will then donate in three months because we have too much clutter. <laughs> um, and I feel like, you know, ultimately, like the, the driving force in that whole thing is like, because we're empty, we're all empty inside. Right, <laughs> we're right. like, we're deeply mm -hmm. troubled. We're very empty deep. inside and we're trying to fill the hole, right? We're trying to fill it up mm -hmm. with stuff that are like when our Amazon package arrives and we are like, yes, Christmas. And then we open it <laughs> and then we feel like the serotonin hit and then it goes away. I'm just speaking for myself, but I understand that other people have this affliction as well. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about the ways in which the brainwashing that we're talking about, right? That brainwashes us to believe that like we need to make more money even just like here, like somehow it's like making money here is like better than making a little bit less, but in plenty elsewhere where you can set up your environment the way you want it. I mean, you don't have to live in the snow, everybody. This is not. <laughs> yeah, you don't. It's not required. And you know, uh, that kind of brings me to a really important part of the thesis of my of my book, which is that um, ultimately I brand America as a narcissistic abuser. And one understands that the 
narcissistic abuse encompasses very like a few tools for abuse and one of those being like gaslighting and mm. selling you these narratives right so if you meet a narcissistic partner at first they'll love bomb you and tell you everything is amazing i love you you were sent to me by god and and sell you all of these dreams and so on and so forth and of course we're enamored by the dreams because who doesn't want everything who doesn't right. want to live in the land of the free with all the opportunity in the world where are you going to be rich and get amazon packages every day and your kids are going to be the best thing ever right <laughs> who doesn't want to accept those narratives so to a large extent and of course the country is founded on propagating those narratives in order to conceal the reality of what it means to be in america especially as a person of color as a black woman <clears throat> what is so uh, mm -hmm, i'm sorry Oh, no, sorry, keep going. Yeah, so ultimately, um, this is a huge part of my thesis, which is, you know, America needs to begin to, to consider what type of relationship, or Americans need to consider what type of relationships they have to their country and what tools of abuse that country may be using to keep you in, ensnared in this um, narcissistic abusive relationship of, like, running, running every day to, to, to consume and, and to promote capitalism and so on and so forth. What is it like parenting, seeing the matrix like this with your kids <laughs> growing up in Trinidad? Like how, how much of what happens in America do you, do you get into with them? Like how, how important is it that they're paying attention to how we, or, or do they get to grow up sort of removed from that? And, and is, that, is, is that a positive thing? Well, you see, ultimately for my children, my children right now, they're only three and four. So they're very small. And I really think one of those, the most crucial and fundamental parts of childhood is freedom. So for me, giving my children freedom to operate in this world joyfully, to feel as if they could participate in golf and swimming and tennis or whatever it is they want to do without the scrutiny of others, to go to the park and play in peace and have friends, to, for their neighborhood friends to come to their party as well as invite them to to over to their house regardless of the color of their skin etc these are the things that i aspire to and prioritize for my children so while yeah it's true perhaps there should be some reckoning with the realities they may face elsewhere i think that bolstering that sense of identity and freedom in the long run will help them to confront these more egregious um just attacks on their personhood that they're going to be exposed to with time certainly i think most black parents that they had that option to shield their children from what it feels like to walk around like with the gaze all the time white gaze all the time they would do it especially in mm -hmm. hindsight because I, I mean i try to explain this to my parents as i've gotten older because i grew up in a predominantly white community and i have a younger sister and we turned out very differently and i you know through therapy have a, come to the realization that you know it it impacted me negatively too just you know and just because you know i sort of like on paper turned out a different way than than she did because i'm i have degrees like you know multiple degrees or whatever like doesn't mean that it didn't hurt me <laughs> like mm -hmm. it very much hurt me um, yes. and I, and so, and I, I always try to explain to my parents, I'm like, why did you do this to us? <laughs> like, yes, like, we yes. were trying to get you an education. I'm like, but it hurt but that's me. The thing. We, we know though, we yeah. know what the impacts of being reared in that way, um, what the impacts are. And our parents perhaps didn't know because I mean, you have to realize integration exactly. is a very recent thing. Yep. And yep. even for, for immigrant pa um, parents like my own, she had no idea her, yep. her whole 
her life was oriented on giving you the best possible opportunities. She she shouldn't have never had to think, well, are these white people going to accept my kids and love my kids? Because ultimately, that's what she was sold. Like, once you get your kids to the best school, they're going to be educated in the same exact way as all the kids around them. And they're going to be treated the same exact way. So she was given a promise. Once again, back to that narcissistic abuse. You, you promise people that once they get their children into these institutions and once their children work hard, that they're going to be treated like their peers. And we know, based on our experiences in these institutions, that that's just a blatant lie. So I would never perpetuate a lie with my own children. I'm going to do everything in my, in my power to empower them through not having to have these experiences that we know are detrimental. And what's your relationship with Black America now? Is it something that you're, you're still grappling with every day or is it something that you're, you're able to sort of turn the volume down on? Oh, my relationship with Black America is that I am a Black American. And ultimately my fight is one to eradicate systems of oppression. And that will be the fight always. Um, I will never turn my back on that fight and I will do everything in my power to, especially um, speaking from a place of, of even a privilege to have distance. Like that puts me emotionally in such a different place compared to many of my friends who are, wow. have been enduring that battle for yeah. so many years. So to a large extent, I'm just like, where to fight? I'm gonna show up. I got my <laughs> gasoline, I got my bandana on and, and, and I'm just ready for the fight. I love that so much. <laughs> no. I, I wish we had another 20 minutes because I have a thousand more questions. Um, but unfortunately, we don't. So you'll all just have to buy the book. It's Black American Refugee. Tiffany Drayton, thank you so much for joining us this morning. This has just been exceptional. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Stay safe and enjoy your day. I'm just, yes. I'm just going to picture your day all <laughs> no, day. No, I know. We'll go from there. Honestly, <laughs> Tiffany is doing it correctly. We should all I, yeah. follow her example. I, I, can't, I can't find a lie, honestly. I'm going to sit here trying to find a lie, and I'm not going to be able to. Thank you, Tiffany. You stay okay, safe. thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.